Hi everyone, this is Kisa Shreen and today we're going to talk about the role that sovereign and sub-sovereign actors play in building resilience, especially as it relates to climate resilience. With the growing frequency of natural disasters and extreme weather events in the U.S. and abroad, the importance of collaboration involving all stakeholders, from corporations and investors to cities and sovereign actors, is moving to the forefront. Here to discuss the future of climate resiliency and the role of government and investors is Joyce Coffey, president of Climate Resilience Consulting. Joyce, thank you for joining. Well, thank you so much. It is a huge pleasure to be here. I'm just thrilled about the incredible content that you share with your audiences. Well, thank you so much, Joyce. That's wonderful. And let's just jump right into it. Could you let us know what is the role of governments, of sovereign actors in terms of climate change? Um, and what roles do they play in this resiliency building that we talk about? Well, that's just a really important question and sort of my life's work. And I think it's really valuable for us to first start with a bit of level setting about what these governments face. Um, for instance, in the U.S., disaster costs over the last five years have exceeded $550 billion, and this is a record. Um, and here in 2020, even though we are only in October, there have been 16 weather, or we could call them actually climate disaster events, with losses that exceed $1 billion each. And that's also a record. And that's, by the way, as of October 7th, so it doesn't include, for instance, the recent um, tragic fires in Colorado. So there's a lot at stake, um, a lot is being lost. and just to sort of make that clearer with one example in a particular sector, we know that the economic losses and social disruption of rising seas on, on coastal housing um, may happen gradually, but this is a quote from Fannie Mae, um, they are likely to be greater in total than those experienced in the housing crisis and Great Recession. So, you know, some people feel like we may be heading towards the next big short, and um, even BlackRock, just to, you know, kind of make this a fine point for the finance sector, has said that climate, the climate crisis is reshaping finance. And it pre presents um, one of the highest sustainability related risks and highest risks overall for portfolios. So governments are grappling with that. And just to, you know, um, end here for a moment on what governments do around climate uh, action, we have to remind ourselves that they set and enforce policy, they provide data and information, and they communicate and pay for stuff, obviously, including extracting taxes and rates and then using that money for things like infrastructure. Um, and in particular, um, I'll just mention a few quick things that state governments and local governments, so the sub-sovereign level, do for climate action that influences the private markets. Um, number one, states, create plans and local governments create plans that assess risks, set priorities, um, engage stakeholders, right? Number two, they create standards, uh, for instance, for infrastructure, highways and roads, transit systems, buildings, water systems, all the things that the private markets rely on to uh, serve customers and provide services. And three, they uh, create resilience policies for regulated sectors. And this at the state level could be like electric, water and waste utilities. So all of our service delivery, the critical infrastructure, um, infrastructure insurance, sorry, real estate, finance, all that regulation is, I think, um, a, a part of the milieu of what states, the role that states play in um, building the uh, climate resilience paradigm for um, 
for the private sector. Um, and there's a few capacities so just, I'd I guess, to share with you. Yeah. Sure. I, I'm, in thinking about that, I'm, I'm thinking there has to be um, always a level of evolution there to add a bit of, mm-hmm. I guess, of a challenge to what you just told us. So yep. understanding that the role is to set policy, the role is to provide data and information, but we know that scientific findings are always changing and evolving. Policies around climate change are continuing to evolve. So what role does evolution play here in terms of the work that these government entities are doing? That's a great question. I mean, I think the most impressive evolution is that um, especially local governments where the rubber really hits the road when these natural disasters strike um, are evolving because the uh, the crisis is growing. So they're evolving by having to apply essentially mainstream finance and mainstream funding to new and growing risks. Um, and this is really, I think, impressive from the perspective of government versus the private sector because cities cannot pick up and leave. They cannot move the chessboard pieces to the less risky place. Um, there really is no outrunning climate change, but in this evolutionary stage, many uh, private market players are able to move. And um, that's a really, I think, distinct difference between the government and the private sector. But on the other hand, there is an edge of innovation that cities are developing in order to pay for the serious risks that they face now or will in the near future. Um, And I think those sort of, that's a really huge part of that evolution, right? The edge of innovation on the finance side, which we can get into in a moment. But I also wanted to be sure that we acknowledge that another thing that's really key for the evolution of cities is that we crack the code on creating social equity. If we do not, the disproportionate impacts of lower resourced Americans, and of course, this would be true of anywhere in the world, um, will become even graver. So we owe it to ourselves to ensure that the evolution means that social equity and financial equity create transformed systems um, in this new era where those communities that are most at risk because of where they are cited, you know, death by zip code, or um, what their health implications are, or what their job status is, they are actually, resilience would define their lives as being improved through government and even private sector actions that help to build climate resilience. Wow, so what a great segue there, talking about cracking the code on social um, inequalities for lower resource communities who are seeing greater consequences is not really something that we can talk about in future tense there, definitely seeing that. Wondering where is the money coming from? So if we have all of these priorities and everything sounds to be um, such a priority, where is the financing coming from? You talk about the innovative financing. Let's delve more into that. Okay. Well, let's just talk first about local government, where the money is coming from for that, because um, you know I, I am really focused on that question. And I think many um, private sector listeners would be reflecting on the fact that generally they do rely upon their you know local services. So Local government strategies for financing resilience include about six things. One, they're generating local revenue, right? This is taxes and rate paying. Um, Two, they're imposing land use costs. Um, Three, they're embedding resilient standards into future infrastructure investments, right? And this is like the lower hanging fruit of ensuring that procurement policies and engineering standards all assess and then address climate risks. And four, 
they're leveraging development opportunities. And maybe we can come back to this because this is really, I think, a portion of how the, the private and the public sectors work together around resilience. And five, they're exploiting federal funding niches. Um, so these niches, you know, are, we know FEMA, you, if you've been in a disaster declared environment, you've heard of FEMA funding, that's the Federal Emergency Management Agency, flooding into um, communities. Um, also funding from, for instance, housing and urban development, that's HUD, um, they do a community development block grant for disaster recovery and for mitigation. So there are funding niches that are a part of disaster recovery. There are a very small number of funding niches from the feds that also deal with what we would call pre-recovery or preparation or resilience um, that are also in those two departments. And let's also dive into leveraging development opportunities. That sounds very interesting. What does that consist of? Okay, great. Well, um, there there are a few things. Um, one is that um, you know states and cities can really um, help with inventories of must-do projects, and those projects are in fact really where development money uh, could make a buck. Um, because often they have a great, you know, credit rating <clears throat> associated with them, or um, they already have the first flush of risk taken away by um, some government uh, mechanism. Um, so I think that, that, you know, we have to remind ourselves of um, the sort of private investment leveraging mechanisms that come with these development opportunities. So governments, for instance, can set up incentives, um, standards and regulations, and even targeted sectors that they say, hey, we really think that this sector is crucial for our government um, cr providing critical infrastructure and um, you know, ensuring that we don't have failure in the systems that our citizens, you know, our, our ratepayers, our taxpayers, and our voters rely on. Um, and by the way, just you know, to be sort of upfront about those targeted sectors, we might get into this in a moment about like where are the opportunities, but I mean sectors including real estate, which faces some of the gravest risks um, in the climate change future. Um, and I mean, for sure, um, engineering and construction, which has grown exponentially with those billion dollar weather events I mentioned at the start of our conversation. And I also mean the financial services industry. I mean, insurance um, is a sector, for instance, in California, they have a new climate smart insurance products database, right? There's there's chances for innovation for those who serve government, just as there are chances for innovation within government. So we talk a lot about government here, which is great. We have a clear understanding of that aspect. But let's talk about the opportunities for investors. What should their perspectives be? What should they be thinking about? Yeah, well, I think there are a few things. Number one, um, investors... Um, who are already savvy enough to be listening to your podcast <laughs> have likely heard about the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, shorthand TCFD. Um, TCFD had about three years ago set forth guidelines for uh, how investment community leaders should be grappling with climate risks. And those guidelines um, were new in several ways. Um, but the most, I think, important for our conversation today is that the guidelines spelled out that investors should be assessing the physical impacts from climate change on their portfolios. In the past, in the last decade, we've seen investors really focus in on the potential risk of, for instance, a carbon tax or cap and trade. 
And then they've also focused in on the potential risk that they might, um, as consumers transition away from these um, fossil fuel industry, for instance, they might have stranded assets in their portfolios. But this was new because the guidelines are actually saying you need to understand both the physical acute risks and the physical chronic risks that your uh, portfolios face. And then also, of course, you need to understand what the opportunities are that those risks um, provide. Because as I mentioned before, I mean, in the investment community, especially, you can move your chessboard around. And so I think, you know, this is really a chance now for us to think about how that risk assessment, which is the first principle, really, of any leader in any sector, you have to assess your risks according to the boundaries and interdependencies of whatever asset is you hold in your portfolio or you um, actually, you know, maintain in your, let's say, in this case of, you know, your headquarters or your supply chain. And then once you assess them, you have to address those risks, right? Um, and that, you know, there's a whole bunch of risk reduction measures that can be taken. Each one of them, of course, is a business sector that can grow. Um, so maybe it would be worth me spelling out just a few of those sector opportunities. Would that be of interest to your listeners? Uh, the sector opportunities and as well as diving into the risk assessment. I'm looking for the yeah. top three or top five. If I'm an investor, how do I go about doing that? Okay, great, great. Well, I think the first thing about risk assessment is um, understanding what the hazards are we're talking about here, right? Um, We're talking about flooding, and that's coastal flooding, storm surge related. That's river flooding, which actually takes more properties um, and causes more um, uh, distress than coastal flooding does, even though it's not doesn't have the same sex appeal and doesn't make it in the headlines quite as often. So those two types of flooding, as well as um, heat. Extreme heat is actually the biggest killer um, in the climate change milieu and, um, you know, will have a growing impact. So there's, um, I think those are the things that you have to assess as your hazards, right? More rain or more precipitation when you don't need it, less when you do. The drought question is there too. And then two is heat um, and, you know, all the, the knock-on effects of all of those things. Wildfire is part of that, obviously. Um, so is a change in, you know, uh, where ecosystems are allowing for certain crops to be grown. So the agricultural sector is another really big one for opportunity um, as well as risk in this case. So knowing what your risks are. And then number two, I mentioned earlier the question of boundaries and interdependencies. So you, the, one of the reasons why cities are really crucial for this is that they provide data and information. And if you have assets, that information needs to be very granular. It needs to be at the scale of like a block or even a property index number, right? So knowing what the boundary is for your risk is, I think, really important. And then three, and this is where it gets a little stickier because those first two things I said any risk assessment, you know, manager in a, the C-suite worth their salt is already doing that, right? They, they're identifying what the risks are and then what the, the boundaries are for those risks within their portfolio. But the third thing I think is really hard, and that is that climate change is all about predictions and scenarios. So it's a little bit like cyber risk in that regard. Um, and those predictions and scenarios really emerge out of like what pathway we are on for greenhouse gas emissions. So already climate change is baked into our systems, so we can already say, well, we're gonna use the scenario that has temperatures increasing um, you know, by two degrees Celsius. 
But then beyond that, if you have an asset that you're holding for 10, 20, 30, or in the case of infrastructure, like 100 years, mm-hmm. even though it might not be in your portfolio for that long, it's been used for that long, you mm. need to be asking, like, wow, what if we go to five, four degrees Celsius? What does that mean? Yes. Yeah, that's yes. big stuff. Tough. This, and this is all, this is all big stuff and all very useful information. So first of all, climate change is reshaping finance. And that's just um, where things are there. In terms of crises, they're growing and governments really are positioned to provide mainstream financing to meet these crises and these risks. Um, Where does the money come from, the government money come from regarding climate finance? Local revenues such as taxes, land use costs, as well as leveraging development opportunities and federal funding like FEMA and HUD are great places to look at in terms of where the money comes from. In addition, what are some of the things that investors should really think about? Joyce, you're saying that it's assessing the physical risk of climate change. That means acute and chronic risks and really assess where the opportunities are. So opportunities can be understanding, first of all, what are the hazards? What are the We talked about flooding and extreme heat being some hazards and really understanding the knock on effects and what sectors are impacted by that agriculture sector being one. Mm -hmm. Knowing risk boundaries, very important for institutional investors and also being ready to make predictions and understand scenarios. Joyce Coffey, president of Climate Resilience Consulting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. Take care. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. You can even check us out on YouTube now. Thank you for joining. See you next time.